0: Wild Lives by Pornographic. Hey and welcome to Wild Lives by Fornographic I'm Rochelle, thank you for joining us Today we're speaking to acclaimed whale naturalist Vicky Neville whose expertise has seen her become widely known as the whale whisperer In fact, a documentary of the same name was recently made about her adventures with the humpbacks of Harvey Bay which is on Australia's Fraser Coast For the past 21 years, Vicky has spent a squillion hours both in and out of the water learning about these giants of the deep. And in that time, she's managed to fight cancer and win, raise two amazing kids, overcome a debilitating eye injury, and she's even run with the Queen's Baton for this year's Commonwealth Games. She's a remarkable woman. Her passion for the ocean saw her permanently move to Queensland's Harvey Bay, which is known for its whales. Every year, around 25,000 humpbacks make the journey from Antarctica to the warm tropical waters of Australia's north coast, which is where they breed and calf. You see, they can't actually give birth in Antarctica because the calves aren't born with enough blubber on them to withstand Antarctica's crazy cold winter temps. So once they've done their thing up in the warm north, they hop back on the humpback highway and swim all the way back to Antarctica, where they spend their summer feeding on krill. At the end of summer, they then start heading back north again to breed and play, etc. And the whole cycle continues. It's a round trip of about 10,000 kilometres or 6,500 miles. It's an epic journey. And it's one that takes a lot out of them. And that's why Harvey Bay is such an important whale hotspot. It's a place where the humpbacks stop over and rest for a few days on their way back south. Someone who knows a lot more about this is our guest today, Vicky Neville. Hey Vicky, thank you so much for joining us. No worries, thanks for having me. So tell us, how did you first discover your love of the ocean and of whales in particular?
1: I guess when I lived down the Gold Coast from growing up as a teenager I started surfing and I was out in the water all the time and where I used to surf we used to get a lot of dolphins. So I used to ride the waves and see the dolphins out there and I guess I was an animal lover from day one, Mm. and uh, when I was very little, you know, I loved all the animals, hated watching documentaries where animals would be chasing others and killing each other Mm. and all that, I used to cry, so I've always had that sort of soft spot for animals, and then, yeah, the dolphins sort of took my um, curiosity out there in the waves and started loving dolphins, and then, of course, when I was young, there weren't many whales going past the coast because of the whaling time. Mm. So it wasn't until a little bit later in life that I then sort of went on to whales after the dolphins and I took my first trip to Harvey Bay when I was about 26 and went out on one of the tourist boats out whale watching. And once that happened, I was hooked on humpback Uh. whales and, you know, it sort of took me a couple of years to move to Harvey Bay after that. But once I did, then they became my life basically. So that's how it all started, out in the ocean, being an ocean girl.
0: Do you remember your actual first interaction with a humpback?
1: Yeah, so when I went to Harvey Bay, knowing that that was um, probably the best place in the world to watch humpback whales, um, I went out on this day boat and it was a little chugger. It was back in the day where the whale watching was quite small actually, nothing like now, mm. and uh, went out on a day tour and we chugged on out there at about probably seven knots and it was a really glassy day and I remember sort of seeing whales and, and being hooked straight away but I'll tell you what, it was nothing compared to what I see now. It was yeah. so far away the whales. There was no close encounters as such. It was I remember seeing a breach and it was like, Oh wow, oh, I've got a photo be- of a breach <laughs> That was really cool.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I remember that breach, my first breach. Um, but yeah, as I said, it was it was quite a distance but I was intrigued and I even remember talking to the girl that worked on the boat, you know, asking her questions, how do you get a job doing this? And and that's really vivid and and I remember all of that. And uh, of course, I couldn't get enough and probably, I think I did two trips that season as the tourist and then I went back to the Gold Coast and I thought that was unreal. And I did exactly the same the following year. And I went out, did another couple of trips, and that's when I went, I want to do this. And and the following year after that, I moved to Harvey Bay. So I do remember those first interactions with the humpbacks. They were in Harvey Bay. But yeah, nothing like what I see out there now.
0: Mm, And that's because the numbers have bounced back so dramatically.
1: Definitely. There wouldn't have been as many um, whales out there when I did those first trips. You know, you go out there now and you look around and you see blows and splashes everywhere throughout the bay. I can't you know, recall that when I first went out there. So I guess, you know, we've got more and more whales now to enjoy and, you know, they're getting used to us out there too. So mm-hmm. we get um, these wonderful, you know, interactions and behaviours that we see all the time. So it was very basic when I first sort of took to whales and you know, it was nothing like today.
0: But you were completely hooked from the beginning, huh?
1: Well, I was I was as a tourist. I was like, I want this for a job. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah, definitely.
0: So how are you able to actually identify individual whales?
1: Yeah, I take a particular liking or passion to um, identifying whales and reciting an individuals. One of the things that we look for but we don't always get, is their fingerprint, which is the underside of their tail. So the underside of a humpback whale, it might have a black dot or a line or a big black patch or whatever, and that's individual. That is like our fingerprints, Mm. basically, for a human. So no two tails are alike, but they don't always lift their tail. They're not whales that, you know, like sperm whales, actually lift their tail every time they dive. And quite often the humpbacks won't lift their tail, so it's sort of like you don't always get to see that fingerprint. So we do look for other things like markings on top of their body, scars, bite marks from killer whales or sharks. They quite often have bite marks on their pectoral fins and their tails. So we look for those sort of things. And even a couple have propeller marks on their bodies too. Yeah, from having interactions with boats.
0: I've actually seen one. uh, Well, I haven't seen it in person, but I've seen photos of it. And they call her Blade Runner because the entire dorsal fin is just rippled from being Yep. I'm definitely have seen that
1: individual as well up in Harvey Bay. Have
0: you?
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's got sort of, it's like um big tire tracks all the way yeah. down the back. Even its tails a little bit chopped too. So, yeah, so we definitely look survive. for all those sort of things. You know, they're typically black on top, white underneath the humpbacks, but sometimes they might have a big white patch on their body or, or a lot of white. You know, mm. we all know Migaloo, the, mm. the pure white humpback whale, but there's some that have got predominantly white bodies with some black. So they're all the things that we look for when, you know, we identify the humpbacks. And then if you want to know if it's a girl or a boy, yep. you need them to roll over upside down. Yep. And uh, if it's a female, we look for what we call a hemispherical lobe, mm-hmm. which is a big round lump towards the back end of the body. You can, you can see pretty well. It's probably the size of a grapefruit or a bit bigger and it's a big round ball that we look for, and if they don't have that, then we know it's a male.
0: One of those you've used this, those techniques to be able to identify one um, famous humpback in particular called Nala, and she's very special to you, isn't she?
1: Oh yeah, she's she's actually very special to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, Nala's probably our most famous individual of all, um, definitely our most well-known mother, and she was first sighted in Harvey Bay in 1992. Um, she was actually sighted in Antarctica before that, but that was sort of her first um, recording in 1992 in Harvey Bay by the Oceania Project, Trisha Wally Franklin, mm-hmm. and there's a few different ways we can tell. It's Nala, first of all, that print under her tail is, yeah, very unique. She has some black markings through the center, so we definitely know that, and she is one whale that does lift her tail she's what we call a tail up feeder so she she actually goes vertical in the water when she's feeding her calves and she sticks a tail right up outside up above the surface sorry and uh, you get a good look at that you know underside of the tail but she's huge she's an older whale and she's really really solid she's quite wide and yeah, she's got a very rounded dorsal dorsal fins is something else that we look at when we're identifying whales. They all come in different shapes and sizes. The the dorsal fin on top
0: mm. of the back. Mm.
1: So, you know, we sometimes see that with her too. It's very rounded and quite flat. So, there's, you know, different ways we can see it's Nala, but definitely that tail print and she's she's um a beautiful whale. She's had 13 calves that we've known of, and that's only what we know. Wow.
0: She's
1: Probably had more than that. She'd be at least, I reckon, getting close to 40 at least now, and she could even be older than that. That's just, yeah, that's just what we know from history. She might be 50, she might be 60, who knows, but we definitely know she's getting close to 40 at least. And she comes into the bay quite often, most years. I think we've recorded her in Harvey Bay 15 times, or like in 15 different years since 1992. So, She's a very well-known whale, and she's one that everyone looks out for each year.
0: I've been looking. I've had no luck yet, but I will keep on looking.
1: <laughs> well, I had one of our regular passengers who has been coming to Harvey Bay for, I think, 27 years or so, and she had never seen Nala as well, but scored her last year. Oh, so uh-huh.
0: maybe this You'll my see time. her one day, no <laughs> doubt. <laughs> so you've actually been eye-to-eye with a whale in the water. What's that feel like? Oh, yeah,
1: no, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's something new um, and exciting that's been happening in Harvey Bay. It's sort of been tried in the last couple of years swimming with whales. But I actually had the opportunity to do it with a doco that we produced back in 2015. And uh, the producer wanted me, you know, in the water connecting with the humpbacks. So mm. we took days and days to sort of find the right whale because you've got to make sure they're in the right mood and the conditions are right, of course with the water clarity and waves and all that sort of thing. So we had the perfect time when a couple of humpbacks came over to the boat and stayed for quite a while and they were really interacting with us from us being on the surface and we thought, nah, these are the two that, you know, I slowly slipped into the water and they were super, super curious when I was in the water and there were two females and, yeah. I
0: expected you to say young males or something. What's that? I expected you to say young males because they're... No, no, really no, they were
1: young girls. Um, one was definitely smaller than the other. One would have only been about, you know, maybe one or two. Oh. Um, the other female was a bit bigger. But, you know, probably only a sub-adult still, a teenage whale. But she was just insanely curious. And she kept swimming over to me, making eye contact, and they definitely do that. You oh. see their eyes moving, looking at you. I was just laying there pretty well stationary and she kept swimming around me and, and then the more time I spent with her in the water the more curious she got and she'd get really excited. So she'd come swim have a look at me, she'd flick her body and do this little funny rollie <laughs> and then she'd swim round in a circle quite wide of me and then come back in. And she repeated that over and over. <laughs> she'd have a little play with me and then swam the lap lap around coming back into me and really interacting she started shaking her body around and pushing her tail but not with aggression you know. And playful. Yeah she was definitely playful she was definitely playing with me so it was a pretty awesome experience and uh, we stayed in the water with her for quite a while because I had the guy that was filming as well so it was pretty fun and um, we had good good clarity so it was an amazing experience and they're quite playful and quite curious, but you've got to have those perfect conditions. You don't mm. want to get in the water with any whale, with other behaviours that go on with them, that's for sure.
0: Mm. So that particular behaviour sounds like mugging, isn't it? That's when a whale comes over for an inspection and they kind of check you out. What other kind of um, behaviours are they famous for?
1: Yeah, well definitely that's what you we do call it, mugging, you got that right. That's um, when they come in and they choose to come in on their own terms and They're very curious and they'll come over to the boats and and have a good look at us and sometimes, you know, they'll hang around the boat for hours on end and that's just simply curiosity, being inquisitive and um, having a look at all the the people waving at them. And when they're mugging, we quite often get what we call a spy hop Mm -hmm. and that's when they go vertical and they bring their heads right up out of the water and if it's a huge spy hop, they'll actually bring their eye out of the water but a lot of the time it's just under the surface but that's definitely um them you know trying to have a good look at us and we do get that quite a bit around the boat especially when they're mugging but there's so many other behaviors that humpbacks are famous for and they are probably the most acrobatic of all the species it's
0: about yeah. breaching
1: yes breaching breaching that's what everyone wants to see yeah. you know you go out in the whale watching boats all the time i hear when are we going to see a bridge are we going to see a breach? And it's <laughs> It's in nature at its best, I often reply, and you never know when you're going to get it. But That's when these magnificent animals lurch themselves out of the water, and they can get pretty well their whole body out of the water with a couple of flicks of the tail. Mm. And they do it for lots of different reasons that we know. There's, you know, escaping predators. Humpbacks have predators, being the killer whales and the sharks, so it's one way to get away from those predators. If they're being chased or attacked, they'll leap out of the water. But there's different reasons. Communication, a lot of um, the splashing activity that we see from humpbacks is communication. So sometimes you might get a a male breaching to impress a female or something like that. Sometimes it's purely to have a look around above the surface of the water because they can actually change the shape of the lens of the eye so they can see above the surface as well. So sometimes, you know, they might see maybe a boat coming or even a landmark or something, so they're getting an aerial view of that. Yeah, lots of different reasons. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very active behaviour. You, you get an almighty splash at the end, of course, because it could be a 30, 40-ton animal mm. um, breaching. And then, of course, mothers do it to teach calves as well, so quite often we'll get a mum breaching and then the calf instantaneously breaches, and <laughs> it's copying mum. And that's how these calves learn all their behaviors. Mum will show them how it's done, and then the calf will repeat it. So that's quite cute because the mother might do a couple, yeah. and then the calf does a couple, but then the calves don't know when to stop and they keep going. And
0: <laughs> I've <laughs> seen, seen that calves. in Harvey Bay. It's oh, like they're on we've pogo
1: sticks. <laughs> breach 50, 100 times in a row. <laughs> they get on a roll and have a bit of fun. So, you know, there's lots of different reasons for a breach, and we see quite a bit of it, um, especially mating season. I think a lot of the time it's you know, quite a bit to do with the, the mating um, ritual and females and males both doing it to impress each other. So,
0: yeah. So with the, um, with the mating rituals, one of them is what we call the heat run or the competition pod. Can you give us a bit of an insight as to what is going on with that?
1: Yeah, that's um, pretty exciting to watch. The humpbacks are very gentle and pretty graceful most of the time, but when there's a heat run on, it's a different story and basically the males actually fight each other for the right to be with females so Mm. in mating season which is typically around sort of september we get a lot of it here in harvey bay we get the males coming in and they'll spot a female and a couple of them will actually start a bit of a fight and they'll chase that female around but then other males hear that that's going on. There might be a little bit of singing going on too and singing's all part of the mating game. The males are the ones that do that. Mm. And it'll attract other males. So all of a sudden you've got 10, 12 whales in a in a heat run and they're all competing for that female. And so they push and shove and huff and puff and they can you know get up to 20 kilometres an hour with speeds like that, wow. chasing around, barging into each other lots of blows, lots of sounds. Sometimes we even hear sort of trumpet sounds from some of the males. And these heat runs can go on for hours and hours. And the younger males that are in the fight will eventually just give up the chase and drop out of the pod, but the other dominant ones will stay until the end, until the most dominant, strongest male will win out for the female and the others just simply give up and they'll just swim away.
0: What's the so, female um, doing in all of that? What, what's happening with her? Is she, like, on the run as well? or she...
1: Most of the time, she's sort of as such in the lead. She's mm. the one being chased. So she doesn't get pushed around or anything. Um, she'll just sort of be up the front and the other ones, the males are the ones sort of pushing and shoving and, and sort of behind her. So a lot of the time, I guess, she's trying to get away as well, especially if she's got a newborn cut yeah. because... We used to say that humpbacks only mate every two to three years, but we now know that they can mate every year. Really? It's gestation's about 11 months, so she might be in the bay with a newborn calf, and it is mating season, but then a male might chase her with a young calf, a newborn calf, Mm. and you feel sorry for the calves because then they've got to keep up with mum being chased, And she doesn't want anything to do with the males. We see that and the poor little calf gets caught up in the chase as well. So, Mm. you know, that's something that we do see. And and when it is aggressive, you really, you feel for the calf. So that happens as well. It's a pretty boisterous time, Mm. mating season with the humpbacks.
0: (laughs) Actually, I've seen it here in Sydney where the water looks like it's boiling because of all the activity under the surface where they're headbutting each other and carrying on. And it's really, really impressive to watch
1: Definitely, and, and that's it. We don't half the time see the, the whole of it as well, like, as such, that there's so much going on under the mm. surface. And they do um, blow bubbles sometimes in a heat run, and you'll see all these lines of bubbles come to the surface, and they're actually under the surface, blowing bubbles to shield off one whale from another.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, we call it bubble screening. And um, on a really glassy day, you'll see all those bubbles rise to the surface, all in a big line, you know, even 100 meters or so. And uh, it's something that they do to, yeah, hide another whale. So you get that quite often. with That's the heat amazing. As
0: well. I, I knew they blew bubbles for feeding, but I had no idea that they did that with fighting as well. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, it is amazing. It's really good to see, as I said, on a really nice, calm day and seeing those mm. bubbles come to the surface and you don't even see the whale. It's, yeah, it's pretty cool.
0: You mentioned before about the singing that it's the males who do that. I've heard somewhere that they all sing the same song every year and then they change it every year. What can you tell us about the singing?
1: A lot not known about singing still and a lot of study being done on humpback song. But as far as we know, it is part of that mating game and that the males are the ones that sing. Females and calves can make sounds, we have heard that, but Mm. it's not the constructed song of the male. The male song, we know, has a start, a finish and verses. So, you know, it might go for 10, 15, 20 minutes, but when they get to the end of that song they actually stop it and start it back at the beginning so it's very complex and very structured Mm. and as far as we know they do change it each year um i don't know who starts a new song and how it evolves but that's you know what we're told that it does change year after year but all the males in that same group sing the same song so our east coast group of humpbacks will be singing a different structure to the West Coast group of humpbacks who will be singing a different structure to the ones out in the Pacific. So it's pretty amazing. That's so um, intriguing. As, yeah, as I said, a lot of study is being done. There's lots of different sounds that we hear. It's really, really loud um, under the surface of the water. I know back in the old days we um, <laughs> had this little boat and we used to actually stick our heads in the water we'd open our little gate on the back deck and stick our heads in the water just <laughs> to hear that and it's so like when you're in the water and even when a whale is really really close to the boat we can actually hear it standing on the deck it's that loud and that's wow. just the whale next to the boat singing if you're down in the hull sort of area you can hear it you know reverberating through the boat so it's yeah extremely loud and it travels for miles underwater but uh, yeah i know they they've just been doing some studies on the song and and it's usually about, I think it's about 80 hertz or something, up to a couple of thousand, but mm. new research is saying that they can get down to levels that we can't even hear, wow. 40, 20 hertz or something. So it's it's very complex. Some of the sounds that we hear sounds like, um, you know, motorbikes and chainsaws.
0: Chewbacca. And, Most of them sound like Chewbacca to me from what someone. What the
1: moans and groans and, yeah, <laughs> different sounds. It's, it's quite funny sometimes. We And we to tell you the truth, we do hear year after year the changes, so we mm. do hear the different structures. You know, one year I'll sort of go, oh, that's a new sound, <laughs> or a new part of the song, so you, you can definitely make that out. So, yeah, quite amazing what we um, listen to. We drop a hydrophone in, and, you know, even if the whale's in the distance, we um, let our passengers hear that song going, and quite often you'll hear multiple males singing in the bay, so everyone loves to hear the song. <laughs>
0: Now, they don't feed on the migration, but do feed when they're eating their krill down south and, and stuff. But yep. the thing about them is their mouths themselves are massive, but their throat is the size of a grapefruit. How does that even work? How do they eat? They're filter feeders, right?
1: Yeah. It's another, you know, amazing thing with, this, with these animals that huge animals, and including the blue whale, which is up around 30 metres, you know, nearly twice the size of a humpback, mm. They feed on these tiny little shrimp-like creatures known as krill. Humpbacks don't have teeth. They're a baleen whale, including the blue whale as well. Mm. So they can't chew their food. So on migration, that's why they don't really target too much food because we don't have krill up in the warm water. And Mm. that's the reason for the southern migration back down to Antarctica. There's a lot of krill that hangs around the ice shelf. So they basically go long periods without eating, although... We used to say they never eat on migration. We now know that they can snack on migration if they find something very small. But the majority of the feeding happens down south. And what they do, they have these big throat pleats under their head. And when they lunge through the water, they expand right open like a bullfrog. And it allows the whale to take on huge amounts of water. And all the tiny little krill are in that water. And then they'll push the water back out of their mouths. And the krill then gets stuck in the baleen plates. They uh-huh. hang from the roof of the whale's mouth. And so then they lick it off with their tongue and swallow it down that tiny little throat. So even though it's a lot of food, it's that small that they can just sort of take a mouthful and it'll slide down that small entrance or throat. So, yeah, it's it's an amazing thing that um, these humpbacks, they need about a 1,000 kilos a day oh. of krill <laughs> to sustain you themselves. Wow. And then, of course, on migration, they... Basically live off their fat or their blubber yeah. while they're not eating and they store that, you know, and they'll, they'll be a lot skinnier when they get back down to Antarctica <laughs> after the long migration and then they'll go back into that feeding frenzy once again. So the migration is basically all about um, mating and carving up north in the yep. warm waters and then the feeding down in the Southern Ocean mm. in Antarctica. They have um, a couple of methods of feeding too, and I actually took a trip because we never really see the feeding too much in um, Harvey Bay. And I went down to Eden, down the you know south coast of yep. New South Wales, and they do get some krill down there. And I watched it one year. I went down there solely to have a look, and I had about twelve whales feeding on a big patch of krill, and they lunge on their side. We call it lunge feeding. Yeah, and it was awesome to watch. It was just amazing thing, and. They open their mouths, you see all the big throat plates expand, but um, something that we don't see here, and they do it a lot in the northern hemisphere, is another method called bubble net feeding, and that's, as you mentioned before, with the the bubbles that they blow, they dive down deep, Mm. and they'll blow bubbles, and they'll swim round and round in circles, and they can also emit sounds, and what it does, it stuns the krill into a big tight patch, and um, they'll push it to the surface, and then they'll all break the surface with their mouths open, and that's just spectacular. Oh,
0: I'd love to see that. I've tried several times unsuccessfully, but I'll persevere.
1: (laughs) Oh, I reckon. Yeah, no, (laughs) it would be good to see. Even the the lunch feeding was spectacular. So yeah, it would be something to see.
0: You've spent more than two decades with the whales. Do you know what it is that keeps you intrigued?
1: Well, that's the thing. They are intriguing. They're very um, mysterious. We're still learning, always learning. You know, I'm learning something new each year. So I guess that, you know, keeps me going. But You know, as I said earlier, too, one of the passions of mine is um, reciting individuals. So year after year, I love going out there looking for that particular whale Mm. that we've recorded in the past, seeing if you know it's a mum that's coming back with another calf, like Nala, or you know just spotting a whale that we've first sighted ten years ago or whatever. It's it's very exciting, so that keeps me going. But of course, their behaviours that we get in the bay—it's just an outstanding place to watch them and. We get so many muggings and and that's my favorite behavior of all Mm. like everyone wants to see those breeches and the peck slaps and the tail slaps and all the active stuff but to me when these very gentle giants and they you know sometimes 14 15 meters come over to the boat and then spend two hours around the boat looking at us (laughs) and interacting with us it's it's just you don't get sick of it put it that way um it's something that I live for and and that you know, each year we usually get a lot of the muggings early in the season. So mm. it's so exciting to have that as the start of the season. All these close encounters, and it's something really, really unique to Harvey Bay. If you're watching the whales off the coast, down the coast, they're sort of on the move because yep. they're on migration. Whereas here in Harvey Bay, we have them stop in, and we know each whale will stay three to five days or so. So. To have them really relaxed and not on the move in Harvey Bay, this is why we get all these behaviours and the muggings especially. So it's something that keeps me going and, yeah, it's it's an amazing job. It's an amazing office and uh, I love the whales and, yeah, always always learning. As I said, we're, you know, seeing new things all the time and research, mm. you know, into the future is going to be very exciting to, to keep logging down, you know, what we see when these whales are doing this at a certain age and, and keeping track of whales like Nala, you know, we might yeah. see her, her for the next 20 years. It'll be
0: awesome. That would be awesome.
1: And it'll teach us more things. <laughs> but, you know,
0: in the late 1970s, a number of whales that came to Australia, as you mentioned earlier, was so tiny because of whaling. And now we're back to around, well, estimates are between twenty two and 30,000 for this year ahead. Yeah. Do, do you know how that's all come about? How... The numbers have come back so steadily. Yeah,
1: no, the humpbacks are really um, surprising us, the, um, the growth, you know, like the speed of the growth. Because really, they say we only had about 200 or so individuals left after the whaling era for our East Coast group. Mm. Um, and that could have been out of a possible thirty, forty thousand 40,000 or so. So, you know, the whalers decimated these populations all around the world, not just here, of course. um, You know, even in Antarctica, there was well over 200,000 humpbacks taken. And um, luckily for the whales, a moratorium was put in place in 1986, although the humpbacks were actually protected in Australia before then. In 1963, they were protected because there weren't many left. So the whalers went off the east coast of Australia and couldn't find the whales because they had taken them all. So basically, yeah, the humpbacks have you know, been protected since then, but the, the actual, the last whale in Australia was taken in 1978, and that was in Albany, that was a sperm whale, and, and then the whaling station shut down there, but that global moratorium since 1986. So we've had a, a long time now where the whales have been protected even though they're facing other threats, and yeah. there is still whaling going on as we all know, yeah. but yeah, the humpbacks shouldn't be targeted hopefully down in Antarctica. So they've been making a good steady progress probably in the last twenty years. It took a while. Mm-hmm. Like even in I remember in nineteen ninety one we used to say there was only about fifteen hundred in this group, this East Coast group. So it's only really been in that, you know, twenty year period that we're seeing them really increase. And we sort of say about 10 to 12 percent increase a year now I think um, sometimes it does get overestimated too a little bit so I think we really need to look at that population regrowth will slow up a little bit now because that's just natural you know with the animals that once they get to that you know I guess with the food chain and all that they'll have to sort of naturally slow down but yeah estimating I reckon probably around the 25,000 or so this year maybe a few more but but it's great to see them recovering and and now we've got to look at all the other things that you know we can do to protect the whales because mm. you know some species aren't out of danger the blue whales are still slowly recovering mm. um our southern hump uh, right southern right whales um are doing very well but in the northern hemisphere they're very slow to recover so there's things like you know the shipping channels where these whales um migrate that these whales have trouble with you know with collisions of course, pollution is a huge thing mm. and fishing entanglement, they're picking up, you know, we're seeing more and more in Harvey Bay, whales coming in with ropes. Or, yeah, we saw or, that
0: together last year when I was up. Yeah, that's yeah, right, yeah.
1: definitely. And and we're going to see that more and more, you know, whales picking up fishing gear and those propeller marks that I mentioned earlier, mm. we're going to see more of that. So we really need to now not just focus on the whaling, we can all do our little bit to help protect whales. So um, there's all those sort of things that they're going to have to... You know, worry
0: about Mm.
1: into the future.
0: One of the things that you've been doing um, over the years is you've been working with the Harvey Bay Whale Festival and your Paddle Out for Whales project. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, so Paddle Out for Whales um, came about after it was basically a little protest day. in 2005 that we had when the Japanese whalers announced they were going to target humpback whales. So previously they've been hunting minke whales down in the Southern Ocean, but they were going to add 50 humpbacks to their quota, and it was like, oh no, they're going to take humpbacks that we know from Harvey Bay Mm. down in the Southern Ocean while they're feeding. So I started really stressing out about it, going, oh, imagine if they take Nala or such and such, and and, um, I couldn't get it out of my head, and then we sort of came up with a little idea that maybe the whale watching industry around Australia could do a little protest to target the government we did to start with to take more action to protect whales and to stop the Japanese whalers. So basically it started off with our flotilla of boats heading out the harbour with banners and signs and and saying, come on, government, you need to do more. And we actually did that two years in a row because IFOR, International Fund for Animal Welfare, Mm. loved my idea when I sort of suggested that we could do it round Oz. And they sort of took it on, so they actually made it this National Whale Mm. Day. And then it grew over the years into more of a celebration day rather than the protest day. And then a friend of mine, Amanda French, came up with the idea in 2010 that we could change our day into a paddle out for whales. And it was just an amazing idea. I thought, yeah, that's a really cool idea. Mm. So it um, was born in 2010, the paddle out, and... It's still going. So we ran it just on uh, raffle ticket money for a couple of years and we had amazing support. We had so many people in the water, hundreds, and then hundreds on the shore because you didn't actually have to paddle out. Yeah. What you did was we used to paddle out 100 metres from the beach with kayaks, surfboards, whatever would float, and we'd all form a circle and we'd have a minute's silence reflecting on the whales and the threats and the whales that were killed in the Southern Ocean. We'd play whale song and, yeah, it just put the spotlight on all the, you know, the things that the whales have got to deal with in this day and mm. age. And, yeah, it was very successful. So for years and years we sort of ran it. And then the local tourism board took it on a couple of years ago and have now made it as part of the um, the the Whale Day that we have here every year, the um, Ocean Festival, yep. Harvey Bay Ocean Festival, which includes two weekends of Seafood Festival The blessing of the fleet the paddle out and then we have a a lantern parade so it's become really really big and it started off as a little protest day and now it's just a a day where we recognize our love of whales and um still spotlight you know all the threats that they face as well
0: wild lives by fornographic follow us on omni.fm or search for wild lives by fornographic on itunes subscribe today and you'll never miss an episode